Christ Jesus our Lord. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. The Lord has made known his victory. He has revealed his vindication in the sight of the nations. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common prayers to you, to sing our praise to you at this time, this day, on the Lord's Day. And you do promise that where two or three are gathered, you are in their midst. And so now, O Lord, we speak, we pray you would speak to us with your word, that you would set our hearts upon your goodness and grace. You would grant us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the world to come life everlasting. All this we pray and ask as you come to be present with us now by your spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our first hymn is number 300, Blessing and Honor and Glory and Power.
Consider our affliction and our trouble, O Lord, and forgive all our sins. Let us confess our sin together with the prayer printed in the bulletin. Father, eternal giver of light and grace, we have sinned against you and against our neighbor in what we have thought, in what we have said and done, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We have rejected your love and marred your image in us. We are sorry and ashamed and repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and lead us out from darkness to walk as children of light. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. We say together... Praise be to God. Hear now the call to obedience, which in the Reformed tradition has very often in many churches, even going back to Calvin, followed after the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. So hear now the call to obedience. Saints of the living God, the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, tells the church to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. The Christian life is a life of restraint. We all have sinful impulses that need to be restrained. Anger, gossip, selfishness, strife, jealousy, licentiousness, slander, and so on. In our society today, among other destructive behaviors, people freely indulge in sexual immorality, arrogance, and degrading others. Christ gives us grace for self-control today, and that's key to this. It's not something we manufacture out of our own power, but Christ gives us the grace to be restrained in our living. Living in, an, on, living in an autonomous, individualistic culture, we might hear the self in self-control and think that self-control is something we do on our own. In other words, self, uh, the self does the controlling, our own selves. But it's not that way. The virtue of self-control is something that grows in us as we participate in the grace of God within the church, within the community of believers. Our Lord creates the church as a community that helps us to develop the virtue of self-control. Have you tried to do this on your own? Have you tried living as a Christian on your own? It won't work. So the virtue of self-control is something that's intended to grow within the church by the work of the Holy Spirit among us. The fellowship of Christ's people helps us turn away from indulging our sinful passions. The virtue of restraining your sinful impulses is not something that you do by yourself. Christ gives you grace within the church to have self-control. People of Christ pursue the virtue of self-control in the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 347, The Church's One Foundation.
Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with grace in our prayers together in intercession for the needs within the church and also in this world. This kind of prayer that we pray here is a bidding prayer, and so I am saying, um, I have things I say in the prayer, and then I leave a time of silence where you join your prayers to those prayers that, are, that, are being, that I'm saying. So let us bow our heads in prayer. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our Father through him, 
We offer our prayers to you with thanksgiving for your gracious care for us. We thank you that you continue to help us. We remember that our Savior taught us to pray for each other and how on the cross he prayed for the forgiveness of even those who persecuted him. And so now we follow our Lord in prayer. Lord of heaven and earth, whose name is blessed on every shore, we pray for the church throughout the world, for the old and the new churches of India, China, Eastern Europe, for our missions in Asia and Ukraine, with Mike McCabe, Sam Folta, Hiro Hakabor, and their families. We pray for the old churches of Europe and the Christian missionaries we know there. We pray for the churches threatened in Egypt, Ethiopia, and Nigeria. We pray for weak churches in Europe and the United States, where their fervor has grown cold and Christian proclamation has grown faint. Renew their joy and faith in Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers for the church. Father, you are just, and you do not let the wicked go unpunished. We pray for peace and justice to prevail in this land. We pray for our nation and those who lead it, for our president, Joe Biden, for our senators, Debbie Stabenow, And our representatives, we pray for those who lead our state and our cities. May they be guided by a dedication to the welfare of all the people they serve and wisdom to uphold the rule of law and good order. Hear our prayers for those who lead us and this country. God of mercy, from whom every good and perfect gift comes, we thank you for the work we have to do. We pray for our managers and production workers, teachers and students, nurses and doctors, secretaries and law officers, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, sisters and brothers, all these various vocations of of, uh, life in society. We pray for those with whom we work and live. Grant that we might receive from you the strength to do our work and the grace to make it helpful to others. Hear our prayers for these with whom we work and for our own work. And now we ask for your mercy. Grant to those who do not trust you faith. Grant to those who are sick healing. Grant to those who face death trust in Christ. Grant to those who despair hope. Grant to those who live in fear, courage. Grant to those who mourn, comfort of their soul. And we especially remember the people who have suffered tragedy lately in various ways, uh, as we hear in the news reports in our country. Hear our prayers, O Lord. Almighty Father, watch and take care of this flock of your holy people at Providence Church. Make them quick to hear and learn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they hear your word, may they seek to love you and others more than themselves. May they live as the people of the new creation and kingdom of Jesus Christ. We do pray for all those who are sick and hurting. Make them whole, make them have, uh, give them faith that is confident in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Heal their diseases and pains of all sorts, O God. 
We do pray for Eduardo and Shirley, for Terry, Jeff, Fawn, for our friends, Becky, Mrs. Mesner, Bill, Phil, Tom, Angie, Karen, Josh, Judy, and others we name to you in silence. As you are the salvation of the world, give us the grace and desire to be your witnesses and live according to your kingdom in Southfield and in the various communities in which we live. Bless all those who give themselves for the service of others as they follow in the steps of your blessed Son, who came not to be served, but to serve, so that with wisdom and patience and courage, they may minister in his name to the suffering, to the friendless, and to the needy. And, O Lord, we pray you would bless our outreach to Lawrence Tech, that we might meet new people and direct them to Christ. Bless also Providence Church here, that we may grow and be able to continue to bear witness to Jesus. All these blessings and mercies we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
As we come now to the reading and the preaching of God's word, it's always appropriate that we see God's illumination of this is word, that, it would, that we would be able to receive this and that it would transform us and renew us. Uh, so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We pray that as we hear this word this morning, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would make them fertile ground, that your word would take seed and grow in us, that it would produce fruit of renewal, repentance, and continued thankfulness for all that you have provided through Christ. For we do pray this in his name. Amen. Our first reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 to 9. Listen now to God's word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles the brushwood and and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We shall all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Our Psalter response printed in the bulletin comes from Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. You have fed them with the bread of tears, and given them tears to drink in full measure. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. branches 
Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Turn again, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you, whom you made strong for yourself. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Our epistle reading comes from Second Peter chapter three, verses one to thirteen. Again, God's word. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments, commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then lastly, our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. But in those days, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give, up, give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Our lesson this morning from the Gospel of Mark is full of apocalyptic language. And I mentioned apocalyptic language in my previous sermon on Mark 13, the previous passage, verses 14 to 23. It's a style of writing that uses symbols and images, some of which come from the Old Testament, but it uses these images and symbols to create strange and giant pictures. You might call them word pictures of unseen forces in history. Now, there's both Jewish and Christian apocalyptic writing, and there's a lot of it. We have, uh, there's a little bit of apocalyptic writing in every writing of the New Testament, and some of the writings in the New Testament are almost totally apocalyptic writings like Revelation. Second Peter, our lesson from Second Peter, also had that language in it as well. But there's also Jewish apocalyptic writing, and we should be aware of that. Just so you can identify the style a little, a little bit better, I will quote from Second Esdras, which was a Jewish apocalyptic writing, because it is similar to some of a couple of the verses in our text this morning from Mark 13, and it talks about the signs of the end of the age. So I'm just going to quote a little bit of it so you can hear the similarity. Second Ezra was written in the middle of the first century, uh, uh, first century in Palestine there. Second Ezra 5 says, And the sun shall suddenly shine forth at night, and the moon during the day. Blood shall drip from wood, and the stone shall utter its voice, and the people shall be troubled, and the stars shall fall. Now, this doesn't say it exactly like our lesson in Mark 13, but it does talk about the sun and the moon not doing what they usually do. And it does say the stars shall fall, just like Jesus says in Mark 13. I want you to hear the similarity of style with these two writings because apocalyptic language was common in first century Palestine and the New Testament writers heard it and used it and God's inspiration of these writers uh, is using those common forms in the the first century. Now our reading, our lesson from Mark 13 raises many questions. 
Questions about the timing of Jesus' return. Questions about Jesus not knowing the hour of his second coming. Isn't that interesting? We hear that in there. The most obvious question is, when is Jesus' second coming? However, no matter what our questions may be, and I'm sure you have many others or you've heard other questions, this lesson centers on Jesus' return, on his second coming. Now this morning, we will concentrate on Jesus' words in verse 26. And then you shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. These words, ever after the first generation of Christians, have been giving the church hope and at the same time have perplexed the church. To make matters worse, the world has used these words against us. Something like this. This would be the the kind of attack we might hear from the world that's around us. Now then, you Christians... Jesus said he would be right back, didn't he? And what? Some 2,000 years have passed. Why don't you face the facts? He's not coming back. It's time to move on. Forget about Jesus as the Savior of the world. He's not the Lord of heaven and earth. He died. He's dead. And you Christians must stop clinging to silly myths. You heard something like this? If you haven't, read Freud. Read Marx. The world uses these words to challenge our essential belief that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. As we say in our creed, he's God of God, light of light, very uh, true God of true God. Look here, say our antagonists. He's not much of a God if he says he's coming back and he doesn't show up. He was wrong and therefore he's not God. You Christians are pathetic waiting for your Son of God to return. You are like children who are told a lie to hide the fact that their father is never coming back. It's time to grow up. It's up to us now to save the world. Now, wouldn't it be just so nice to wave these criticisms off as the foolishness of unbelief, the denials of those who are not neutral bystanders, as much as they might claim they are. They've already rejected God, and they're merely looking for ways to confirm their rejection. But it's not that easy, just waving it off, because it hits a Christian nerve. Yes, our critics are heavily invested in denying God. Even so, even if we know that about them, what do we say? It's disconcerting that Jesus has not come back yet. Our perplexity is all the more exacerbated by Jesus' insistence that his words are equivalent to God's words. Did you hear that in our text? He confirms what he says about the signs of the end and the nearness of his return by asserting the authority of his words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Jesus says. And that's the kind of thing that Israel heard about God's word back in the days of of the Old Testament. Like in Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. God does what he says he will do, and therefore he's faithful. His word does not come back empty or fall away like the shadows at dusk. That's what Israel heard as they listened to God's word back in in the days before Christ. Jesus says his word is that kind of word. It's God's word. It's the word of God. It will stand forever. It is a faithful word. His word is a faithful word and does not fail. What he says is trustworthy and true. In our reading this morning, Jesus' word is this. Then you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus coming again does not seem near. 
So does this mean his word is not equivalent to God's word? And if so, then the Christian faith might start to unravel because our faith is dependent on Christ and his teaching and his works. Forget about the attacks against the Christian faith. We have our own difficulties with Mark 13 and Jesus' long-awaited second coming. There are various ways the perplexity of this delay has been worked out in the church, and I'm going to give you a couple ways that that's that's been worked out within the church. So we have our critics outside the church, but then we have our own perplexity inside the church, and there's some ways that the church has worked out this uh, difficulty. Some think the early church read alien apocalyptic ideas from the surrounding Jewish culture into Jesus' teaching. So as I told you, the apocalyptic style was all over the place, very common, and so maybe the church or Jesus, Jesus or the church reads that into his teaching. In the first century, there was a strong belief that the end was near. You can read a lot of these other apocalyptic writings and you get a very clear sense that there was a strong belief that the end and God's judgment was near. It was the subject of many of the Jewish writings like 2nd Esdras. You might say it was the talk of the town. It's much like people today talk about climate change. It's all over the place. You want to write a PhD, a dissertation? We have a couple in our church who were doing that. I'm sure they had to mention climate change in their dissertation on music theory. I don't know. (laughs) Consequently, some Christian scholars today claim the belief that the nearness of Jesus' second coming was merely the expectation of the first-century Christians who got it from Jewish beliefs that were mixed in with Jesus' own words. You see what they're saying here? So what this is saying, this answer to to the uh, perplexity about his delay and the text of Mark 13 decides that the problem is with Scripture. Okay? Others in the church say that Jesus was simply mistaken. In his humanity, Jesus did not know all things. He even says that in our lesson. But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So this interpretation argues that Jesus thought the end was near, but really did not know. So this interpretation says the problem is with Jesus. Problems with Scripture, the problems of Jesus. Others offer a more careful reading of Mark 13. They suggest that most of this chapter is talking about the end of the temple in Jerusalem and the transition from the old age to the new age of Jesus' reign in this world. The temple was the old center of God's authority. It was where the rule of God was based and where the people of God gathered from all the nations, such as at the Feast of Passover. Remember all those different nations that are described, peoples from all these different places in Acts chapter 2. So it was a place where God's rule was based. In Mark, Jesus answers the disciples' question at the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 13, about the temple. He said the temple would be destroyed. On this view, the signs of the end are all related or mostly related to the destruction of the temple, which is indicative of the transition from the old age to the new age of God's reign in this world. Verse 29, according to this interpretation, should not read, and you can look at verse 29, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. It shouldn't read that way, they say. Rather, it should read, you know that it is near. And it refers to the destruction of the temple. In the Greek, it could be translated either way. 
Furthermore, there's son of, the son of man imagery here in verses 24 to 27 from our lesson is royal imagery. It's imagery with authority. It bears authority. Jesus says, and then you will see the son of man coming in clouds of great power and glory. There's royalty in that. Refers to Jesus Christ entering into his authority and power as the ruler of this world. According to this interpretation, that in our text, Jesus is talking about the transition from the place of God's authority in the temple to the new age of Jesus' reign. Jesus entered his authority and power as ruler over all things at his ascension. He came into his power and glory seated at the right hand of the Father. Now the authority and rule of God are no longer centered in the temple in Jerusalem, but on Jesus Christ. The old age has given way to the new age of Christ's rule. This is the time when Christ is gathering to himself the elect from all the nations. And we're in that time right now. It's an intriguing interpretation. This interpretation says the problem is with how we have been interpreting the text, not with Scripture and not with Jesus. Careful work with the text can answer many of our perceived problems. And so I've given you this interpretation so you can see there is a way to work this out so it's not quite as perplexing. And careful work does that, not careless work, like saying the problems of Jesus or, or uh, Scripture. But it can be done carefully. I realize there are some other ways to interpret it. Um, but if it's done carefully, it can help with these perceived problems. But even if Mark 13 concerns the destruction of the temple and God's authority and rule centered in Jesus Christ, the church continues to confess that Christ will return and the end is near. So this doesn't completely remove the fact that Jesus Christ will return and, and that the scripture says the end is near. To be clear, the New Testament insists on it. It insists that the end is near. In his letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives thanks to God for his grace to the Corinthian church while they wait, and then Paul says, for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you in the end. He's telling the Corinthian church that. When did the Corinthian church exist to whom Paul's writing? In the first century. He's telling them that they're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The letter to the Philippians says, rejoice always, let all men know your forbearance, the Lord is at hand. Hebrews says the day, referring to the day of Christ's return, the day of judgment, is drawing near. First Peter says the end of all things is at hand, therefore keep sane and sober for your prayers. See, they're all sane. It's right here. It's near. The revelation of John testifies to the words of Jesus who says, surely I am coming soon. And the church says, amen, come Lord Jesus. God's word will not let us set aside the return of Jesus Christ or the nearness of the end. And yet, it's been almost 2,000 years since Christ was crucified and he has not returned. So how can we understand this? Well, part of our difficulty is that we primarily think of Christ's return in terms of a timeline. We've been trained to do that uh, ever since all the debates about post-mill, pre-mill, all-mill, all that stuff. Um, we've had this sense of a timeline going on, and, and there is some reason for that. I'm not trying to say a timeline isn't completely uh, uh, unimportant. It is. But perhaps we're thinking too much along the, the lines of a timeline. So the timeline would be Christ came the first time, right? 
in the first century. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He conducted his ministry. He died on the cross. After three days, he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So now we wait for Jesus to come a second time. What we do is we separate these events from each other according to our timeline. The thing about a timeline is you have to keep space between the different things on the timeline. And so we separate these events. The first coming is separated from the second coming. The one is at the beginning, the other is at the end. But scripture doesn't do that. It keeps Christ's second coming close to his first coming, not far away from it. The revelation of Christ actually shapes the Bible's view of time, or you might say the Bible's view of time is, it grows out of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Instead of seeing Christ's incarnation and his ministry and death and resurrection and ascension and second coming as all these separate events all separated from each other, we must see them as all part of the action of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. They're all tied together in that action. Different aspects of Christ's work, but kept together in one person. Does that sound familiar to you? Like his divinity and humanity kept together in one person? Two natures in one person? Same thing might be said about the work that he did, about the different acts uh, related to Jesus Christ. They're all kept together in his one person. They're not a series of separate acts, but essentially they're one divine act of salvation held together as one by the mercy of God. Do you think our salvation is only the fact that Jesus died on the cross? Oh, that is so important, that's key, that is central. But so is the resurrection. And so is his incarnation, because if he wasn't born of the Virgin Mary um, by the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have died on the cross. So you've got to keep these things all together. They tie together. They're not a series of just separated acts. They hold together in the one person. So when we view it this way, according to God's word, Christ's return is indeed imminent. And I'm asking you to do a little bit of a shift here in your thinking, which might be hard, but you can go home and ponder this and ask the Lord to help you. It's, it's, uh, the, his return is imminent, near at hand, even if it's been 2,000 years later, because all these things are held together in the one person of Jesus. He has come into this world And so his second coming is near at hand. Do you see? Because he has come the first time, it's all near at hand. What causes the delay? There is a delay. Scripture acknowledges that. It's not the separateness of Christ's coming. It's not the fact that here's his first coming and way over here is his second coming. That's not what causes the delay. It's God's mercy. It's God's desire to give people the opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Jesus coming again to judge the world is nearer than you think. What postpones it in time is God's kindness to us sinners. Both our lesson from 2 Peter and what Jesus says in Mark point us to that. So far from being an embarrassment, the second coming of Jesus Christ is a vital part of our faith as Christians. So it's good to be corrected by God's word. It's good to have our understanding and interpretation of scripture improved by God's word. However, there's still a difficulty for us about Christ's second coming, and that's the problem with what we see. We see the church scattered, scattered like leaves in the wind. There are all different kinds of churches, isolated, independent from each other. Most of us did not even know, at least I did not know, about the churches in Syria until the Christians there were being persecuted and chased out of their country. I just had no idea. 
I mean, I knew there was an Orthodox church, but I didn't know much about the Christians there. There are Orthodox churches, Armenian, Catholic, and several Protestant churches. I didn't even know that there was a Presbyterian church in Syria. And I checked it out, and it's the National Evangelical Presbyterian Synod of Syria and Lebanon. They've linked the two together. It's been there since 1823. Some of the churches in Syria are ancient, going back to the time of Paul, but these churches are all being scattered. Christians are also scattered by the differences in their theology, and we see this. Right theology is critical for a church. Not all theology in the churches is true to Scripture. One of the side effects of different theology is it scatters us. Protestant churches are famous for being scattered. There are thousands of different Protestant churches in the United States alone. One source that I found uh, said that there are 45,000 different Protestant churches around the world. Now they're counting non-denom and all those churches that would say that they're independent, but all of them add up to about 45,000 different churches, just Protestant churches. Protestant churches are famous for being scattered. They're Reformed, Lutheran, Baptist, non-denominational, Anglican, Pentecostal, Methodist, and many divisions of each of those. When we first moved into this building here about 20, well, almost 20 years ago, I made a point of visiting most of the churches in a two-mile radius around us. Now, if you're new here, you probably don't realize there are a lot more Jewish congregations around us than Christian churches. But I went to the Christian churches around in a two-mile radius, and I met the pastors of those churches. I exchanged pleasantries with them. I learned the church's stories. They would share with me about how they got going, what they're doing. In some cases, they were very different from this church's story. And that was it. Very few of us have made contact since then. Protestant churches are scattered, and they seem to be scattering more and more. We see this. You just drive down 10 Mile, and you'll see this. We see the church also tossed about by the wiles of Satan. Congregations in turmoil because of false doctrine. There are some serious errors disturbing churches. Pastors who do not teach that Jesus Christ is our one and only Savior. But even if the doctrine in a church is not false, we have all of our narrow little theologies that turn the church into a boutique shop, sitting beside all the other little boutique shops with their narrow little theologies. It's kind of like going to a strip mall full of hair salons, each one with its own distinct style. The church, in its immaturity, chases after one narrow doctrine after another. Churches are also being torn up by bickering and jealousy and immaturity and pride, and one Christian looks upon another as inferior. He does not know as much. That other, other Christian doesn't know as much, or they're morally immature. And so we look down upon them, we judge them, we condemn them as, as, um, as, uh, uh, as inferior to us. Satan jumps on that. I mentioned in the last sermon about cracks that sometimes we... we pursue something, and we do something that creates a crack for Satan to come jumping in. Satan jumps on those kinds of things. When we start putting ourselves over other Christians, he jumps on that. And before you know it, there's dissension and anger and a rift that occurs between the Christians. Recently, I heard of a pastor of a church with campuses. This always is a marvel to me, but a church that has five different campuses across different states. And these campuses all draw about 14,000 people. Now that pastor has resigned. The head pastor, the church issued a statement because it was a notable thing that it was because of pride, anger, and a domineering spirit. 
The pastor resigned, and what about the church? Well, it all broke up. 14,000 people, all spread out. We see the church torn by the cruelty of unbelievers. The church is physically torn when terrorists throw bombs through the door, ripping the church into pieces. Or coming into a church, I heard about this uh, maybe a year ago in Florida, came into a church and there were people already gathering for Sunday morning and somebody came in and started a fire right inside the church. So the church is physically torn apart when that happens. But it can also happen with the rounding up of Christians and executing them or marching them off to a prison camp. Of course, that's happened. It's torn by people who revile the church and its faith. I saw a YouTube video of a well-known atheist ridiculing the Christian faith in Jesus Christ. And the audience, he was standing in front of an audience, laughed hysterically. They loved it. He was tearing at the church. And guess what? He wasn't just tearing at the church some anonymous institution, like we use the word church, he was tearing at us. You see, it doesn't just happen to others. It happens to us because we are part of the visible church of Jesus Christ is being torn. So we see the church in distress in this world, and that is difficult enough. But it's the not seen that is the hardest part. We do not see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. We do not see the old age passing away. It still seems fully present in its rebellion against God and rampant in its sin. We do not see Christ on his throne ruling over the nations. We don't see it. And we are people who love to see things with our optics, with our physical optic eyes. We don't see the church drawn together as one. We do not see the church triumphant. And so it's difficult to believe that Christ's coming is near at hand, like Scripture tells us it is. If in our not seeing, we must listen to Jesus' words in our lesson this morning. In our not seeing, we must listen to Jesus' words in our lesson this morning. He says, the other verse he says um, that's important here is, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And I like what John Calvin says about this verse. He says, let us learn to turn our eyes to the gathering of the elect. Christ holds this out to us for the express purpose of raising our hopes above human means. Now, whether Jesus is referring to this time right now after his ascension or when he comes again, pushing it off to a later date or both, Jesus directs us to himself and to his power. In spite of what we see, the church scattered, tossed about, torn apart, and what we do not see, Jesus Christ ruling over the nations and coming in glory and power, Jesus fixes our hope on him. The gathering of the elect from every nation is not done by human power but by heavenly power. We cannot overcome the obstacles of bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot do that. We cannot bring the church together in right doctrine and unity. Nor can we make the church stop sinning. Oh, we wish we could. I wish we could. And we should try as part of our witness to Jesus Christ. If only we could bring the people of this world to Jesus Christ, to have a church that's united and obedient and true, how we long for that. And yet the obstacles are insurmountable for us, but not for God. We must learn to look to God, not to ourselves. Jesus Christ has overcome the obstacles of the sinful world. That's the gospel. 
The Son of God became man in this world. He became man and rebuked the demons, all those stories we, we heard in Mark. He confronted the world's hatred of God. He took the sin and deceit of the world upon himself. He defeated it, and then he rose in power and glory. The resurrection is him rising in power and glory. And now as he rules in heaven over all the nations, he's drawing people to himself from every nation. The obstacles in this world cannot stop him. Jesus is gathering people to himself right now. That is how you have come to faith in him. That's how you have been drawn. Maybe you were born into a Christian family. That's great. And we fully believe that baptized members are true members of the church. But you have to be drawn with faith to Jesus Christ. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized in the church, he's drawn you. It's not because you figured it out. He has drawn you to himself. That's, <clears throat> that's how I have come to faith in him. His power has overruled the sin and divisions and the enemies in this world to bring you and me to him and many, many more. That's, that is such an understatement. Many more besides us. It's by his power, not human power. And as he gathers us, he shall bring us together in one faith, one church, one Lord forevermore. So while we wait for Jesus Christ to come, we see his power at work. The problem is we're myopic. We're nearsighted. We see the church right in front of us. We see the church in the United States and maybe in Europe, and we think the church is shrinking in this world. The International Bulletin for Missionary Research, is IBMR, based at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, their Center for Global Study of Christianity does very meticulous, careful, large studies of, of the world on the growth of the church around the world, around the whole globe. Their work shows the church is still growing, in the, and this might be a bit of a surprise to you based on all the reports we hear, but the church is still growing in the United States and Europe, although very, very slowly, maybe just a couple percentage points. But listen to this. From 1900 to 2015, the church in Europe has seen over that time a 52.2% increase in the number of people who are Christians. But because the world's population has grown by 78% in that same time, the church's growth doesn't seem as significant. But it's still growing. The church is growing even more dramatically in the rest of the world, most notably on the continents of Asia and Africa. For example, there, are fewer, there were fewer than 9 million Christians in Africa, in the continent of Africa in 1900. Fewer than 9 million. As of 2015, there were more than 541 million Christians. In the last 20 years or so, the church as a whole in Africa has seen a 50, in 20 years a 51% increase, which amounts to an average of 33,000 people either becoming Christians or being born into Christian families each day. Jesus, who will come again in power and authority, is the same Jesus who has ascended to the Father and rules in power and authority right now. It's the same power, the same Jesus, the same authority, ruling right now, gathering the elect from the ends of the earth. Our text ends with Jesus saying, watch, be alert. One way we watch is by having our myopia corrected by the word of God and seeing the power and authority of Jesus in this world right now, which will also be revealed when he comes again. Let us pray. 
Blessed Jesus, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear the Scripture, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest these Scriptures we've heard in the preaching of your word, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of your rule and everlasting life, which you have given us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lives with you and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please stand, and as we've heard the word of God, let us respond with faith using the Nicene Creed printed in the bulletin. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we prepare to come to the Lord's table is number 318, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending.
Apostle John looked through the door of heaven, as we read in Revelation, he saw the living creatures, the elders, the myriad of angels, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In Israel, God instituted the spotless, innocent, sacrificial Lamb to be the substitute for the people. And the priest laid his hands on the Lamb, and the sin of the people was transferred to it. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. Then the lamb was slain in their place. Slain in their place. In the Passover meal, God's people feasted on the lamb that was slain for them. So if we put these things together, the one that removed their sin is the one who became the source of their new life. Now, of course, all of this is a shadow or it points to Jesus Christ. It's the same with Him. He is the Lamb of God who removes the curse of sin and death upon us by taking it upon Himself and destroying it at the cross. The Apostle says, we know that our old man is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. And by his resurrection, Christ has made the end of death. So now we come to the table, and by faith, in the bond of the Spirit, we feed upon the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He bears our sin and punishment, and he gives us his righteousness and life to those who have faith in him. The one who is slain for us becomes the one who is food for us. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. This is at the last supper before his crucifixion. And Jesus, Jesus said, take, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So, you are invited, if you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized, if you belong to a Christian church, you are welcome to come and join and share at this table in this feast with our Lord. As you accept this gracious invitation, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin, you are endeavoring with all your heart to obey Him by God's grace, and you are seeking to live with love and concern for your fellow Christians with whom you will be eating and drinking. Coming to the Lord's table, we cannot harbor grudges or unforgiveness towards each other. We need to have those settled. To do this, if we do this, it incurs the displeasure of the Lord as we read in Scripture. So coming, you affirm your love for one another in Christ. Do you have everything perfectly worked out in your life? Of course not. But you're affirming and confessing and trusting Jesus Christ to be the one who reconciles you to each other and the one who reconciles you to God. Join with me in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. You are worthy of our thanks and praise, Lord God of truth. For by the breath of your mouth you have spoken your word and all things have come into being. You fashioned us in your image, and you placed us in the garden of your creation. And though we chose the path of rebellion, you would not abandon your own. And again and again, you drew us into your covenant of grace. You gave your people the law, and you taught us by your prophets to look for your reign of justice and mercy and peace. As we watch for the signs of your kingdom here on earth, we echo that song of the host in heaven, who are forevermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Lord God, you are the most holy one. 
enthroned in splendor and light. And yet, in the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, you revealed the power of your salvation made perfect in our human weakness. Embracing our humanity, Jesus showed us the way of salvation. And loving us to the end, he gave himself to death for us. Dying for his own, he set us free from the bonds of sin, that we might rise and reign with him in glory. And so we come to this table and we confess our faith, that very ancient faith and simple faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We proclaim the death that he suffered on the cross. We celebrate his resurrection, his bursting from the tomb. We rejoice that he reigns at your right hand on high, and we long for his coming in full glory. As, you, as we recall the one perfect sacrifice of our redemption, Father, by your word and the Holy Spirit, may the eating of this bread and drinking of this cup be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Form us into the likeness of Christ and make us a perfect offering in your sight. Look with favor on your people and in your mercy hear the cry of our hearts. We pray you would bless the earth, you would heal the sick, you would let the oppressed go free, you would fill your church with power from on high. Gather your people from the ends of the earth to feast with all your holy people at the table in your kingdom, where the new creation is brought to perfect perfection in Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom in the unity of the Holy Spirit all honor and glory be yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. We offer our thanksgiving with one voice and say together, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Eternal God, Heavenly Father, you have graciously accepted us as living members of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have fed us with spiritual food in the sacrament of his body and blood. Send us now into the world in peace. Grant us strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart. And this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 320, Rejoice All Ye Believers.
blessing to see so many folks here today. Uh, Today happens to be our fellowship meal, and I'm sure that's why so many of you have come. Our fellowship meal is well known as being amongst the best in southeast Michigan. So we would very much enjoy having you stay and and join us. Uh, Love to get to know you and your families better uh, and and, uh, just celebrate what God is doing amongst his people. Uh, so please consider staying for our fellowship meal. It really is pretty good. I was, I'm not taking anything away from it at all. <laughs> um, and uh, just be aware that as we're starting in September now, who can, tomorrow's Labor Day, um, and uh, we start a number of the programs back up uh, even this week. So uh, I'm just going to quickly go through those. Uh, this Thursday... Uh, will be the women's prayer meeting at uh, the Roberts house, Deneen's house, uh, and that'll be at 9 a.m. for those of you who are able to join. And then uh, a week from Thursday, that is on the 15th, we'll we'll be restarting our Thursday uh, Bible study. Um, Also, uh, please be in prayer for the um, time that uh, Pastor Jeff is spending over at Lawrence Tech, that way. Uh, and uh, as he meets with students, it's not intended to be any kind of um, really st- structured or anything like that, apart from saying that Jeff is going to be there every Wednesday to pray with the students and, and get to know them and, and build relationships there. Uh, so please be in prayer for that. And then uh, also on September 23rd, we'll be having our uh, Friday evening prayer at the Hannum's house. So those are all the announcements that I have. I'm kind of looking. If I can add to the Lawrence Tech thing. <clears throat> um, so I went to, or Heidi went to the, uh, they had a, like a social fair, club fair thing um, like a week ago on Thursday. And it wasn't well organized. And so they have all these other clubs. The game, gamers were next to her at a table. You know, all these different groups. And, uh, and yeah, she joined. Yeah, she's a gamer now. Um, so I, I realized, and in talking with our liaison there, I've, I've realized that they kind of see this sort of thing as, as like, well, in the last, this last week and next week is the Greek rush. So they're doing Rush, Greek, in the atrium, which is normally where I would go meet. So I can't meet in there for two weeks. Um, I'm just going to set up a chair and a table and my signs and just whoever comes, comes, and I can pray and talk with them. But um, I realize, I think they probably see this kind of thing as a rush. It's just like another social club thing that people can come and rush. And Allison asked me, you know, so how many people did you get come and join? I go, it doesn't really work that way. (laughs) So that gives you a, a... an understanding of the way they see it instead of, of the humanity. I mean, technology is great. It can do a lot of good things for society. It can also do some destructive things for society. But that's like this much of society is, is technology or maybe this much. There's a whole lot more to life than technology. It's a university. 
So the idea is they have more than just technology schools going on there, but still it's easy in a college university to, to kind of boil everything down to a brain on a stick and to lose the other parts of being human where, where you meet the weaknesses and the problems and the anxieties and all those things that all those kids have. So you don't really rush that. You just um, you encounter it. Sorry. And hopefully you can bring the gospel into it. So that's the hope. And then we make the connection. Maybe they'll come to worship here and you can get to know them. Um, but that's something to pray about is that, that this isn't going to be stalled by their perception of what we're trying to do. So. I'm trying to think how to recap that all for well, the folks. Next to the Hopefully they caught that, but, but just to maybe to summarize it is that um, maybe the common thread here is, is that from the university's perspective, they're viewing this as kind of more of a social activity that akin to the Greek fraternities and sororities, which students would rush. And um, it's not that, obviously. It's much more one of a... Um, actually, I think it's more, more uh, of, being, of showing Christ's presence, even in very secular settings, that Christ is present in those things. And, and, and there are, God's people are present uh, everywhere, kind of what we're listening to as part of the sermon. And that there is this connection that we have and an opportunity to share that connection through opportunities like prayer and discussion and Christian conversation. Uh, and so that's what Jeff is looking to do. I know that wasn't quite what Jeff said, but that's what came to my head. All right, if there's nothing else, we're going to uh, finish setting up for our uh, fellowship meal, and uh, then we'll say a, a prayer and, and enjoy that time of uh, food and fellowship together. So thank you.